I've been asked several times here, and uh, it comes up every once in a while, why we don't do altar calls. You know, we haven't done altar calls here for 14 years, and there's a reason, but um, if you don't know what an altar call is, it's a moment when the, uh, the pastor, the evangelist, the leader calls people up to the front to make a public commitment in their life to Jesus, to Christ. And it can take the form of a small ritual. The sinner's prayer is often used, a formulation of a prayer. And it's a public commitment ceremony or ritual, I guess you would call it. And I don't want to belittle them. I don't want to take anything away from them. I remember um, when I was first coming up in evangelical Christianity, you know, some 30 years ago, and uh, and through the 90s, there were lots of rallies that were taking place in, in baseball stadiums and, and such. And uh, at the end, there would be an altar call. And I remember sitting up in the stands and watching uh, a lot of young people, especially, kind of streaming down to the field uh, to to do this, uh, you know, this public commitment, and they'd be laughing and talking. And my sense was that they kind of wanted to see what the f- stadium looked like from the field, and there wasn't a lot of thought going into it. And so I, I was, there was that juxtaposition for me, that kind of dissonance that was going on as I was watching this unfold, because I really didn't understand um, altar calls at that point. I was still so new. And I remember listening to the radio the next day where they were talking about this particular gathering and saying that so many hundred people were saved and and brought to Christ. And so that even furthered my dissonance because how many of those young people really were saved, quote unquote, and what did that mean? One of the unfortunate implications of altar calls as they have been done here uh, in the West is that they are tantamount to salvation that we go and we say this prayer, we perform this ritual, and we are now saved, quote-unquote, which means we are going to heaven and we are avoiding hell. Marcus Borg had a a great line for this. He said, if that's true, then it's salvation by syllables. That we can just say this formulation and suddenly the heavens open and everything changes. If there isn't follow-up, if there isn't something that happens then it's very difficult for us to understand how this salvation thing works. We have talked a lot about here from time to time whether salvation is an event or a process. And of course it's both. But if you just look at salvation as an event, if you just see it as one moment, kind of like at the wedding where you say, I do, and now you're married for the next 40 years, you're married for the rest of your lives, I mean, any of you have been married for any length of time, you know that if you aren't saying, I do every single day, you're saying, I don't. And it's like that with our relationship with God. I don't want to minimize the altar call and the importance of the event, the importance of the sacrament. And we talk about sacraments here, but sacraments in the church are the outward expression of an inward transformation. It's the heart that makes the sacrament holy not the ritual itself. We aren't giving, (laughs) Oz didn't give nothing to the tin man that he didn't already have, right? When we baptize, when we confirm, when we marry, when we do any of the things, holy orders, ordain, it's the person's heart that sanctifies, not the ritual itself. And so we want to make sure that that's not back to front. And so when we chose not to do altar calls in that particular form, we did it so that we weren't giving the implication that this was a sum total 
of a person's salvation in terms of that. We wanted to try to make a different kind of statement about that, and maybe we haven't done that well enough. Um, some, you know, After I was in that church for a few years, I was moved to do an altar call, and they would do altar calls at the church. I was at it. It was very evangelical, conservative, very Pentecostal. And so I remember sitting with my four-year-old daughter on my lap. And that was when we used to still dress up. And she had the shiny patent leather black shoes on and the little fluffy dress and the leggings. And I had braided her hair and all of this. And she's sitting in my lap. And the pastor had asked anyone who wanted to give their hearts and their lives to Jesus to hold up their hands. And so my hand was in the air. And I can still look down in my mind. And I can see that little face turned up to me. And she was saying, Daddy, why are you crying? You know, And I didn't know why. I just knew that I was. I knew that something was stirring in me, and I had my hand up, and suddenly there was a voice in my ear that said, see me after the service. And so I did, and the pastor took me into a little back room, and he led me through the sinner's prayer, and I prayed it with any fervency that I had in my heart at the moment. And then as soon as we were done with it, he got up and headed for the door, and I said, wait, 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 wait a minute. What just happened here? You know? I, I said a prayer, but I don't feel any different. And he kind of shut the door again and dutifully came back. He didn't look at his watch, but you could almost sort of feel it, you know. And he sat down and he said, he said, truth is, you've accepted Jesus into your life. Feelings will come later. And he was gone. And I know what he was trying to do, and I was glad that I was on the path. That was my moment. But I didn't understand what was going on. He really said what was true. You know, the truth was that I had gotten on the path, and feelings did come later. It was true, but it was not real helpful at that moment for me. I needed something more. I, I needed something to be able to, to grab onto what was I supposed to do next. And this is what we want to do here at The Effect. We want to take the time to present the fullness of the way of Jesus back to the Father, which is what Jesus calls salvation. This way of Jesus, this only way of Jesus that he's presenting that gets us connected with the Father, as we were talking before, to be able to see life through the Father's eyes. Paul in Philippians 2, 2.11, if you want to be precise, actually 2.12, he talks about that we need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And that's a, a line that has really just turn the church inside out and into fits because we know that we're supposed to be saved by grace and not by any of our own works, lest we boast, right? But then here he is saying to work out your salvation in fear and trembling. Now, that's an idiomatic expression. It appears four times in the New Testament in various places. And it doesn't mean what we think it means. It doesn't mean in terror that you're trembling with terror. Actually, he's probably echoing at this point Psalms 2.11. Serve the Lord with reverence, rejoice with trembling. And so the idea there, fear, the word for fear, can be understood as reverence, as respect, as awe. And trembling is understood as deep emotion. We would call it passion. And so the idea here is that salvation, this idea of salvation, that is both an event and a process, We must be fully committed to it and passionately engaged, passionately and consciously engaged. And we need to also further understand that to a Jew like Paul, to a Jew like Jesus, salvation is not entrance into heaven after we die. 
To a Jew, salvation is spiritual liberation right here and right now. Now, how do we know that Jesus meant it that way when he said it? No, we can't know for sure. But we do know what every rank-and-file Jew would have understood by that word at that time in the first century in Judea. And if Jesus didn't take the time to redefine the term, if he knew that their idea was different than his, like he did with lots of key terms, he did that with kingdom primarily. Kingdom was the big one that he had to redefine because they had a different idea of it. But he also had to redefine forgiveness. He had to redefine several other key terms. He didn't redefine the word that we have translated as salvation. So that means that what they thought about it was okay with him. That it was a here and now spiritual liberation. It was the freedom to be able to love as God loves without all of the fears and compulsions that keep us from being able to do just that, that keep us from the vulnerability that is required to be able to love that way. When Jesus says in John 8, if you will continue in my word, we talked about this one just a a couple weeks ago, and we had to make sure that we understand that word means something bigger than just the word. Word is the whole sentence. Word is the whole story. Word is the whole treatise. Word is a mindset. Word can be a worldview. It is the sum of all Jesus' teaching and all of Jesus' actions when it's used this way. If you will continue in my word, in this process, in this way, then you're really my disciples. You're my Talmudim. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And for Jesus, the truth is a person. We have to understand this is so important. Truth is not data. Truth is not information. Truth is not a proposition. Truth is his Father in heaven. The truth is who that Father is, how that Father loves, the reason of this creation, all of that together. That is the truth, that when we know it, yada in Aramaic, to intimately experience, not just to understand intellectually, then we can become free free from all of those things that will keep us from being able to just be in the moment. That's being saved. Being saved from everything that keeps us away from our Father. Now, we can't get all of that in an altar call, you see? You can't even get all that in a sermon, to be you know really precise about it. And I'm not trying to. And we do events, obviously. We do take people, and if they want to say the sinner's prayer, if they want to make a commitment, we'll do that with them. We baptize people here. We treat them as those sacraments. Then we will turn and work together on the process. So there's a starting point and sometimes restarting points along the way, milestones along the way, but the process is what is important. And if you want to get on the process, if you want to know more about what we're talking about, then just ask us. It's kind of like Marion said, if you want prayer, ask us. If you want to know more about what I'm talking about, if you want to get on the process yourself, if you're ready to engage, ask us. Because we have a policy here at The Effect. We don't give unsolicited advice. It's not our place to do that. We don't run around trying to fix people. But when you come to us, that's totally different. Now you put a quarter in us. Look out. Right? Now, we're going to tell you what we're convinced of all day long, but that's not meant to persuade. That's just meant to communicate. Take what you need and leave the rest. But 
if you want to know more about this, even though we're not doing public altar calls for the reasons above, ask us. Because the real work that we're doing here at The Effect is done one-on-one for the most part. It's done in counseling. It's done in spiritual direction. It's done in, in the ministry school. We talked about Allie joining the, the ministry school, which is basically one-on-one guided independent study. But it's specific, and it takes you through a process, of course. And then small groups, same way. They are where a lot of the work gets done. Here we can talk. We can do talk therapy here. But in that type of process work, that's where the action takes place. That's where we start to to work at a much deeper level. And if we find out there's big blockages, that's when we're going to refer out to therapy. We're going to refer out to maybe psychiatric services, to recovery services. You know, we've sent people to EMDR if there's PTSD. We've talked to people about um, DBT and CBT. And, and there's a whole wide range of services that we either provide here or we can refer out to because if there is a big blockage and we don't take care of that, then everything downstream is just not going to work. We have to start in an orderly process. So this is where a lot of the, the work gets done. And all of this is to say that if we can get ourselves balanced enough, get our emotions regulated enough, that we can continue working along Jesus' process, working out our salvation with respect and with passion, we're going to get to that liberation point. We're going to get to that point where we really are free of everything that limits us and everything that distracts us and everything that pulls us off. Then it's a complement to all that type of work and certainly beyond that type of work. There is contemplative practice, contemplative spirituality. There's two pillars to the effect. One is to look at Jesus from a first century Jewish point of view. That changes everything. It changes the message. It changes the relationship that we have with the Father. And the second part is contemplative spirituality. They're a complement. They work together. And you can't really have one without the other. And this first one, looking at Jesus from a Jewish point of view, we can explore that here on Sunday morning. We can explore it in small groups. But contemplation is something that is personal. It is a personal journey that you are either ready to engage or you're not ready to engage. Now, what is contemplative spirituality, in case you're not familiar with that? Contemplative spirituality approaches God not through the intellect, not through ideas and understanding, not through theology and doctrine, but through experience. The idea of contemplative practice and all the various techniques is to step away from the egoic mind, what we call the egoic mind, the conscious mind, the one that talks to us in words, the one that judges and separates and, and uh, you know, has contingency plans and is thinking about past and future, to step away from all of that and then just come to a place of pure presence in the moment that allows us to really know our God because we can't know who we are until we know who God is. Our identity is based on ultimate reality that we call God. And if we haven't experienced that, if we don't know what that is, how in the world can we know who we are? We are going to imagine that we are that voice that talks to us in our heads. And the accomplishments and the roles it plays and the attributes that it has, we'll imagine that's us. And as long as we're doing that, we are limited. We will be drawn about by the emotional content and the thought patterns like a tail wagging the dog until we can finally step away from that. 
Contemplative spirituality allows us to be able to do that. Theology hits us where we think, okay? Contemplative spirituality hits us where we live. And you probably all know the difference. For decades, I used my intellectuality as a bypass to the deeper spirituality. That's how I held God at arm's length, by always thinking about him and not letting that go and allowing God to be here now for me to be in, like that communion, to actually be inside each other's space. It's a completely different experience. Not a reaching forward, acquiring, taking by the throat, but a pushing off and letting go. It's so different. What are the building blocks of contemplation? Well, it's meditation. It's centering prayer, which is a a type of of prayer, wordless prayer, that has the same intent as meditation from the Christian tradition. Mindfulness, just practicing presence by stepping away from the egoic mind. All of those techniques, and there's so many more that we would get into if you were interested, are all about building awareness. All about awareness. Has to be awareness. Becoming aware of yourself as deeper than just the thoughts and emotions that are spinning in your brain. We can't change. We don't change. We don't transform. We don't heal. We aren't saved, quote unquote, liberated, right? Until our awareness catches up to us in real time. Our awareness has to catch up to real time. It has to be in the moment because only when we're self-aware in the moment are we able to choose other than our core beliefs, those subconscious belief patterns, those emotions that are being triggered, all those things down in the subconscious that we have no control over until we are aware in the moment that there's a choice to be made, that we can open up that space between stimulus and response. We can't make a different choice than our programming. And that programming keeps us enslaved. It keeps us enslaved to sin, understood as the illusion of separation. Hataha. That's really what it means. It is the separation that is the sin. Our minds give us the illusion of separation. Those unconscious judgments that we're making, the biases, the prejudices, the fears, the compulsions, those core beliefs we talked about, assumptions of life, assumptions about relationships, assumptions about ourself, all of those. You remember Paul in Romans 7? Oh, what a wretched man I am. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. What is going on? I don't understand. It's like Jesus from the cross. Forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. They don't understand. Why in the world am I doing these things? I'm, in my mind, justified. To me, this is love. To the person that I'm standing across from, it's abuse. It's hatred. I don't know what I'm doing. Paul is giving us the exact experience of what we're talking about. At that point in his life, Romans 7, the masterpiece of theology, he's admitting to us that his stone is still not smooth. He's admitting to us that his awareness has not caught up to his real-time moments because he keeps falling into patterns that he doesn't understand. Contemplation, therapy, all these things we're talking about, this work, this process, this working out salvation and respect and passion is the process of getting free from all of that stuff that dogs us, all that stuff that keeps us from the truth 
this person of unity, this Father, makes us free and saves us only when we are aware in this moment. See, we can learn truth as a proposition, as a concept in our head, long before it can catch up to us in real time and it becomes a part of who we are in the way that we can now act on it and we can be free from it. And truth that hasn't caught up to us in the moment is not going to do us any good. We literally won't know what we're doing as we do it. And contemplation cuts through all of that. Contemplation helps us do what Jesus told the young man to do, to sell everything that he had, give it away, and come follow. We can't do that until we're aware. We can't let go of old ideas. We can't let go of the things that we have learned since childhood that are still down there. This freedom of pure, mindful presence is what Jesus is talking about as the end result of his way free from limiting thoughts, free from unregulated motivations. Now, does Jesus teach all this stuff? Show me chapter and verse in the Gospels where Jesus teaches all this stuff. I will maintain that Jesus does teach it, but he doesn't teach it directly. He's not going to lay out details. He doesn't use the word contemplation. Don't look for it. You'll never find it in the Bible. And so the question is, why not? Why is this not recorded directly in Jesus' teaching? Let me ask you this. Have you ever thought of Jesus as a poet? I got a big no over here. A lot of people just kind of staring off, thinking about it. Have you ever thought of Jesus as a poet? We don't do that, do we? We never think of Jesus as a poet. We think of Jesus pretty much the way we think of ourselves. And it's okay, every culture does it, you know. If you're in Africa, Jesus is black. If you're in Asia, Jesus has, um, you know, the eyes. And if you're Eurasian, Jesus is white with blonde hair and blue eyes. I mean, we think of Jesus as ourselves. And so we think of him not only in the physical attributes, but also as part of our culture. We here in the West are so rational, so logical, so linear, that it's difficult for us to think in terms of poetry. Poetry doesn't hold the same place in our culture now that it did 100 years ago. It just doesn't. We don't think that way. And we've never thought of Jesus that way, as a poet. But think of what poetry is. Think about the mechanics of poetry. Think about the motivation of poetry. Poetry is about metaphor. It's about symbol. It's about figure of speech imagery, story, parable, and most importantly, poetry is about paradox that's left unresolved. It's not all tied up neatly at the end of the episode. It's left unresolved. To understand that life is expressed and experienced first and then can be expressed as unresolved paradox because that's the way it's lived, that there aren't answers to every question, this is the poet's job to bring us in to that space, to make the connection between these images and the real life that we are living every single day. The poet is bringing pieces together, making connections that maybe we didn't make on our own. That's the poet's job. Now think about the way Jesus teaches. He teaches exactly this way. He shows us things. He doesn't tell us about them. He's pointing toward an experience but not explaining the details. It's very different. 
This is poetry. Jesus is a poet. If you go back and read his words, I'm going to read some this morning, maybe you'll start to see the poetry in what he's doing. Not poetry the way we think of poetry as rhyming and meter, because Jewish poetry didn't work that way, but in the way that he teaches. And until we start reading Jesus as a poet the way that he delivered it, we're going to miss the implications of his message. We're going to miss the experience that he was trying to evoke in us rather than the ideas or concepts that he was trying to impart. Now, I realize that in many evangelical circles, this is creating howls of protest, and it may be in your mind as well to be thinking of Jesus this way. But consider a few things. The Sermon on the Mount is kind of the summation of Jesus' teaching. It was probably an early catechism uh, for, the, for the church in the first century. It is so highly figurative. <laughs> it is so hyperbolic. The church hasn't known what to do with the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, for 2,000 years. That's why the church relies so much more on Paul to actually formulate the church and to, to formulate the institution of the church than Jesus. Because how do you deal with what he's talking about in the Sermon on the Mount? Why? Because it's poetry. <laughs> it wasn't meant to be a rational, logical way of laying out the institution of a church. Now, we can argue technically and, you know, and probably win that it's not technically poetry in the Sermon on the Mount. But here's the thing. It functions like poetry. Whether it's technically poetry or not, it functions like it. It has all the poetic elements, especially the hyperbole. Jesus loves to overstate things, have these huge, giant statements. But he understands, and he hopes we understand they're not meant to be taken literally. We need to look at them as poetry. So let's take a look at a few of these and see what we can come up with. We're going to be right inside the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6, verse 22 and 23. Now think poetry here. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness... How great is the darkness? Okay, what the heck did he just say? You know, does that make any sense to us? Here's the problem. We're reading something that is so highly figurative in a language that is three languages apart from the one that Jesus spoke it in. And you know that you can't do a straight translation of anything in any, any two languages. But from an ancient Semitic language like Aramaic into a Western language like Greek and another Western modern language like English, and it's poetry that you're trying to get across, I mean, you're losing so much. We don't understand what the words mean anymore. I, the first word there, aina in Aramaic, doesn't just mean the I as we're thinking of it. We're going to over-literalize this, and then we won't understand that last line. If the light that is in you in darkness, how great is the darkness? But if we understand the I also includes the view or the opinion or the mindset, we, couldn't, we wouldn't be stretching it too far to say your worldview is clear. The word there is peshita. That means simple, true, sincere. Seeing things as they are with awareness. If your worldview, if your view of life is seeing things as they are with awareness in the moment, then you're full of light, nura. And nura just doesn't mean physical light. 
It means harmony. It means intelligence. It means clarity. It means a, a peaceful understanding, a clear and straight understanding. Your life will be full. Your whole body will be full of that kind of light. But if not, then it's going to be bad, evil. That's Bisha. And we've gone over that one a long time in here, between Taba and Bisha, good and evil. Literally ripe and unripe. Bisha is unripe. Bisha is immature. Bisha is not ready for prime time. Bisha is not able to do what the manufacturer's specifications say it should be doing yet because it's not there yet. If your eye is still immature, if your eye is unaware, if awareness has not caught up yet to your view of life, to your way of seeing life, then your whole body will be full of darkness, hosheka, darkness, which just doesn't mean physical darkness, the absence of light. It means chaos. It means disorder. It means swirling, chaotic energies that you can't control and you don't understand. And if the clarity in you, if the intelligence in you is chaotic, how great is that chaos? Now you see what Jesus is talking about. All about awareness. It's poetry, but it's poetry three times removed and we don't understand the words anymore. Aramaic has many meanings lined up, layered up simultaneously with each word. It's only the context that gives us the meaning. And multiple meanings are possible, giving layers of added meaning. Matthew 6, 24 to 34, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Okay, there's two words there, God and wealth. We have them very distinctly in our mind right now. God is God. Wealth is money. It's material possessions, right? Well, let's get back into the Aramaic and realize that God, Allah, doesn't just mean God as we understand God. It also means oneness. It means multiple things functioning as one. It means unity. To the Jews, God was Allah, Eloah in Aramaic, which meant God is one. Ehad. It was the same idea. So, if you are trying to serve two masters, you can't serve the oneness, the unity of God and wealth at the same time. But wealth is mamona. And mamona was the originally the Canaanite deity of avarice and greed. But as it came down, it wasn't just physical wealth. It was anything that you piled up in your life that came to define you. In other words, what do you identify with? That thing that you identify with is what is driving the bus. Not what you say you believe, but the thing that you're identified with. And if you identify with material possessions, if you identify with anything that gets you from point A to point B, it can be your talent, it can be your looks, it can be whatever, then you're going to see the world dualistically. You're going to see it bifurcated. You're going to see things as separate rather than the oneness that God represents because you won't have the awareness to see life as God sees it. For this reason, I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life worth more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. Here's the poet. That they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth more than they? Now, we can sit here logically and think, well, God's not going to pay my mortgage, huh? 
I mean, how's that going to work? You know? But the birds are constantly working, aren't they? Have you ever watched a bird? I mean, it's basically looking for food all the time. It's kind of like your dog. It's looking for food all the time. But what it doesn't do is worry about the future. It doesn't store up for the future. It doesn't think beyond the moment that is right here and right now. Everything is contained right here and right now. The bird doesn't have the capacity to think any differently. We do. But this is what Jesus is saying. If you are bifurcated, if you are pulled off of the unity of the moment by this worry over here, there's no way that you can be in kingdom. There's no way that you can see life as God sees it. Your awareness is not caught up to you to be able to do this. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And Aramaic being the way it is, you could translate that a single cubit to your stature. It works both ways, but you get the point. Skipping to verse 34. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I love that line. In other words, presence. Bring your awareness here and now. Stay in the day. Everything is here if you will let it be. If you can have the awareness to let go of the things that are pulling you off and be right here, everything changes. Matthew 7, verse 1, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way that you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye? but do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Poetry. Do you see the imagery here? To judge. To judge, as we're understanding it here, is a conclusion we reach because of a preset standard, an assumption that we have made. It could be a bias, it could be a prejudice, it could be a law, it could be a code, it could be just the way that we are raised, it could be the sum of all the experience and the hurts and the traumas, but these are judgments that we bring to a situation before we've discerned it, because discerning is a conclusion we reach based on experience. We need to discern, but he says don't judge, because when you do that, you are just tapping right into those assumptions, those core beliefs. There is no awareness there. It's not just about people either. It's about our moments. It's about our relationships. It's about our life attitudes. If we're not free to experience the reality as it is, to see it as it is, to discern it, then we're simply just overlaying our judgments. And this bit about taking the speck out of your brother's eye, remember I, Aina, it means our mindset, our worldview, our vision, our opinion of things. It's the sum total of the way we look at life. If there is a limit to that in your brother's eye, how in the world can you fix it until your awareness has caught up to you and you have the kind of awareness that allows you to be here and now? You hypocrite, he says. Take the log out of your own eye first. If you translate the word that is translated hypocrite directly from the Aramaic, you know what you get? Receiver of faces. Just think about that for a second. This is so cool. Receiver of faces. In Greek drama, the hypocrite the, was the mask that the, the actors would wear. That was, a, that was the word that comes hypocrite to us. 
in Aramaic, this idea of the receiver of faces. It is what we have received that we're looking through, like a mask or like a filter. It is the way we look at life, but we've received it from someplace else. It's not real. It didn't even come from us. It's something that we receive. And yet, it's what we're now projecting. It's the way we now see and experience life. Right? The reality you believe is a reality you endure. I love this idea of the receiver of faces, the projections, the illusions. It means that we're still unaware that we're even wearing this mask, that we are wearing this face, this outward projection, and that we literally don't know what we're doing when we're doing it. There is not awareness there. Matthew 6 5 and 6. When you pray, you're not to be like those hypocrites, those receiver of faces. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who's in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So again, we have this receiver of faces unaware of their own need to be seen, to be approved of, to be revered, to be held up on high, doing the things that they do to get those kinds of dopamine hits without even understanding why they're doing it. But to become aware of the purpose of prayer, to withdraw from those distractions, to move both physically into an isolated space and interiorly into solitude to practice the silence and the solitude and the stillness and the simplicity, those four S's that we've talked about, to become aware of God's presence when we step away from all the noise in our head and all the noise around us. We do it because we have begun to value the presence of God in such a way, this unity, this person, that we're going to do it when nobody's watching. We're going to do it when nobody is pinning a medal on our chest or giving us any sort of reward. We do it because it is feeding our soul. We do it because it is becoming life itself. Our awareness is catching up. And then right after that, he gives us the Lord's Prayer. But that third part of the Lord's Prayer at Matthew 6:11, give us this day our daily bread. If you translate that directly from the Aramaic, it's give us the bread of our need this day another call to be here, to be now, to let your awareness catch up to you and stay in the moment. Six antitheses at the the beginning of the sermon, just a couple of them, Matthew 5, 21. You have heard what the ancients were told. You shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Now some of those, <laughs> some of those insults seem pretty tame to us. But racha, to say racha, you, you fool, them's fighting words. By the time you got to the point that you said that to another person, you were guaranteeing a violent response. You were guaranteed a food fight. There was no way back from that. Then Jesus says, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And of course, after that, the disciples are saying, How in the world do we do this? I mean, there's no way. How are we going to live if we're already guilty for just having the thought? Jesus is making a point here. This is what the rabbis call the Kalve Homer argument, light and heavy. 
If something was true in the light version, then how much more is it true in the heavy version? Jesus would say, you know, you who are evil, Bisha, immature, you know how to give good things to your kids. How much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask? Light and heavy. If it's true in the light, it's true in the heavy. Here's another argument of that. If something is true in the heavy, thou shalt not murder. If that is a sin, then just to have the angry thought, to have the unregulated emotion, is already a breach in relationship. It's already a breakdown of kingdom experience. This is a call to nip it in the bud. This is to take care of it. If your awareness is caught up to you, you're not going to be aware when you're beating someone to a pulp that maybe you might have overstepped. You're going to realize it right at the beginning when you feel that turn in your stomach, when you feel that pang of anger and resentment, and you start working on it then. Look what he says here at Matthew 5.29. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. Perfect example of hyperbole, right? Do you think he means that literally? We'd all be walking around blind, right? Poetry. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. There is a Hebrew concept that if you are moving into covetousness, if you're moving into a breach of the law, it's first your eye that sees the thing you want, it's your foot that takes you there, and it's your hand that grabs it. Now, Matthew doesn't give us the foot, but Luke does. Luke says, if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. The idea is there is a process to these things. If your awareness is such, you can stop it right at the beginning. As soon as you see, as soon as you feel that emotion, you can stop before it escalates and moves into the devastation, the destruction of absolute loss of relationship. All about awareness, but given to us poetically. And then finally, at Matthew 7, 13 and 14, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. So often we think that Jesus is talking about heaven and hell, right? The way we understand heaven and hell. Salvation or not salvation. There have been pictures and sculptures done of so many people on the broad you know, road falling into the fiery hell and then just a few people going on the ascension up to heaven. It has nothing to do with heaven and hell. It has to do with everything we're talking about right here and right now. Jews don't talk about the afterlife. This is something that we have to understand and process as we're reading the scriptures. Jesus is talking about who is going to get on this process, who is going to do this kind of work, who is going to work on bringing their awareness forward so that they can see with the Father's eyes. How many people do you know that you would say are doing this work? Go into Home Depot. Find out how many people are that enlightened as they're going through the garden department, you know, or anywhere we go, on your freeways. Very few people will do this work. Unfortunately, very few people are even been told about this work. Salvation is still an event. Go up and say a prayer. And it's all done? Then why isn't my life changing? Why is my life still hard? Because the work hasn't been done. This is what Jesus is talking about here. 
This is how it works. This is the way to the Father. It's the only way to the Father. To be able to take ourselves to the point where we can actually see with the Father's eyes. Can you see the poetry now? Can you start to see Jesus as a poet? Go back and do your own reading. Read the way that Jesus formulates what he says. Read the way that he interacts with the people. He's a poet. And can you see the contemplative message in the poetry, in the imagery? It's all there. But we need to see the poet. We need to see Jesus as poet guiding us, pointing at truth, evoking a response, engaging us in an experience, himself as part of the experience, along with us, experiencing what we are experiencing, not telling us to do something that he's not willing to do himself, not telling at all, simply inviting us to engage. One of the most interesting and provocative poets of all time, I think, is Rumi, if you're familiar with Rumi. He's a Sufi mystic, um, Muslim, of the 13th century, right? He has an amazing poem of which one line is, out beyond ideas of right doing and wrong doing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. Out beyond ideas of right doing and wrong doing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. And then he finishes that up with, when the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. What is he saying? What's he trying to get at there? He's talking about the mere obedience to codes, unthinking obedience, not aware of what's going on, but just obedience to law, obedience to code, obedience to what we have been taught, the receiver of faces, or judging by preset standards, is claustrophobic. It hems us in. It restricts us. It's a strangling prison of unawareness of the needs of the moment. We don't have to bring our awareness to the moment if we know exactly what we're going to do, if we know exactly what this person is like because of the prejudice of the ideas we have about him or her or the situation or life in general. How are we thinking? How are we being completely aware of what's going on? There's an inability to be truly present if that's all we're doing. We're not free to choose what love requires, but just slavishly adhering to the received faces, to the beliefs, to the projections. But doing the work of Jesus' contemplative way saves us from that, liberates us from that, takes us to this limitless field beyond the constricted gate and the narrow way. And Jesus says, I'll meet you there. This is where I'm going. You can follow me if you want, but only if you're willing to sell everything you think you know. Let your awareness catch up so that you can see what's right here. And in poetry that is just as beautiful as Rumi, this is what Jesus is saying. Sell everything, all your old ideas of right doing and wrong doing and continue in this way, continue in this process of salvation and respect and passion, be fully committed, be fully engaged, and you will know, you will experience truth as a person, this person who is truth. And that relationship 
will make you free. If we'll do that, Jesus says he'll meet us there. And only there. Because he, Jesus, and truth are one, and they can't be anywhere else but beyond all these things we constantly think about. This is the contemplative way. This is the way of Jesus. And if you are interested in learning more about that, that's where you ask us. Come to us. Come to me, Frank, Marion, Scott. Tell us that you want to learn more because nothing makes my day more (laughs) than someone who wants to know more, someone who might be ready to engage And if you want to say the sinner's prayer first, beautiful. We'll say that and mark the entrance of your path on the narrow way. But make no mistake, there is work to be done. And you will have to go into the descent before the ascent, as Jesus said. But it's beautiful. And to finally start to see the world as the Lord sees it makes all the difference. Let's pray. Father, thank you for all of this, of course. Help us to be able to see the scriptures in a different way. Help us to see them through the poet's eyes, through your eyes. Father, you're a poet. There is no way that our universe would look the way that it does if you weren't a poet. There is no way that your love and your message would look the way it does if it weren't for you being a poet. So thank you for the poetry in motion that we see all around us. Help us to enter into that, to become poets ourselves in the way that we view life. And to allow ourselves to let go of the things that are so limiting that we don't even realize how limiting they are and to find you in a brand new experience. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your constant devotion to us. And never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.